0: If you've followed this podcast for some time, you know that its title is of importance to both Kevin and me. As educators, we believe in a philosophy called Blue Sky Learning. Similar to a growth mindset and utilizing grit, Blue Sky Learning means to have incredibly lofty goals, but to break them down into achievable parts. It's experiential learning at its finest, and of course, our focus is on aerospace education. So our students at the Aerospace and Innovation Academy, which sponsors this podcast, do just that. Between building real spacecraft and businesses to writing and presenting their research around the world, we encourage your middle or high school student to start working with our after-school program. It starts with Space Club, which teaches the fundamentals of teamwork and aerospace 101. From there, they're invited to join the illustrious Wolfpack CubeSat Development Team, which is a real-world team of students across the country and the globe doing that real-world work of aerospace. New cohorts will start soon. And of course, if you know any university students who are interested in getting to become part of our real-world aerospace work, it is also important that you reach out to us by contacting us at the website. So do check out the website at www.aerospacehigh.org, that's a e r o s p a c e h i g h.org or follow us on social media, like Go to Space on Facebook. That's g o the number 2 space Go to space on Facebook in order to learn more. And now, back to this week's podcast. In this special replay episode of Let's Go to Space Blue Sky Learning, we revisit our interview with Dr. Jin Kang, who was a keynote at our first SmallSat Education Conference in October. Dr. Jin Kang is an associate professor of the Aerospace Engineering Department at the United States Naval Academy, and he serves as the director of the Naval Academy Small Satellite Program. His main research area is in small satellite technology development, and he was involved in the development of four microsatellites and numerous cube satellites. He received his Bachelor's of Science from the University of Michigan, his Master's of Science from Stanford University, and his PhD from Korea Aerospace University in Aerospace Engineering. After working for General Electric for two years, Kang taught at Korea Air Force Academy, the KAU, and Drexel University before joining the Naval Academy faculty. We continue to be proud of the work that we do with Dr. Kang, and we invite you, as always, to stay tuned after the episode for our takeaways. Dr. Jin Kang, thank you so much for spending some time with us this afternoon. Start off by l- telling our listeners a little bit about who you are and how you came to be involved in space in the military.
1: Yeah, so uh, yeah, my name is Jin Kang. Um, I'm basically uh, like sort of one phrase introduction. I'm the space guy at the Naval Academy. Um, so we develop lots of uh, small satellites and our main goal is to you know educate our students so that they get trained up on Satellite operations, satellite development, so that they could um, go out and be effective um, from day one. Sort of my career path, it's, I don't, I think I'm a bit of an oddball in that I knew exactly what I wanted from, like, when I was really young, so it's, it's always been sort of space, 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 go, go, go. So I've been aerospace major all the way through, and um, I've been, I've taught at a, a different university, a normal, non-military university in the past and um the naval academy opportunity came along and uh, when i got to learn a little bit more about the naval academy program uh space program i I learned that there's such a um, a lot of things going on they're very active they've been launching satellites um, for a long time and uh, to me it was kind of like a candy shop it it was just the, the things that they had going on at the naval academy was great so um i got an opportunity to Work at the Naval Academy, and now I'm running that candy shop myself.
0: I think you're our first person that we've spoken to who actually got involved in aerospace through the military and continues to kind of work for them in that capacity. I, I don't think we've had anybody else from the military. Uh, in we've had
2: some retired folks, but yes, you're you're a you're in a unique slot yeah. as far as a career. I
0: don't think most people think about aerospace and the military. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how the two are, you know, in overlap? Uh,
1: so I'm actually a civilian. Um, I've been, I'm, I'm not US military. <laughs> I used to be a Korean citizen, so I was right. uh, uh, in the Korean Air Force. And um, I mean, military and uh, space, well, space in our lives is very integral to everything that we do in our lives. And um, same thing with military. Um, when you think space, um, unfortunately, uh, people may think Air Force, but Navy is sort of the number one customer of, of space services. So, so we, Navy launched the first um, U.S. satellite, and um, Navy's been there from from day one for space age. And since it's so tightly integrated with everyday military operations, um, um, having having students the experience to um, See, see how the satellites work, how they get developed, all of that is, is a huge plus for when they go out into the fleet.
2: Right. Um, I know the Army tried to launch the first satellite in the US, I believe, but the Navy probably was successful the first time. Um, my first memories of you, uh, Jen, uh, I'm working at NSF with this guy named John Moore. It's about 2011. He goes, I know this professor at Drexel, and he does these satellites. And John was always about remote sensing, remote sensing, uh, and using it in the classroom. And so I did meet you the first time. One of my favorite all-time photos of me is actually you and Bob Twiggs and me in a picture at the National Science Foundation. Um, can you share just a little bit about your experience actually being in a Twiggs classroom? And for our people, uh, for our listeners that don't know, Bob Twiggs is the creator of the CubeSat Form Factor.
1: Yeah, so um, I was a grad student at Stanford and uh, Bob Twiggs, Professor Twiggs was my advisor. And uh, we were working on small satellites. And what we mean by small satellite is um, like 15 kilograms about you know, um, 18 inch cube type size satellites. So those are sort of the first generation university satellites. And um, I've been wanting to get into satellite things and in my in my mind satellites always been sort of the bus sized kind of hard to get to like NASA only type of thing but and with uh, working with um, Professor Twiggs, I had the opportunity to actually work on student satellites like get my hands on stuff that's like going to space, so that was great. And um, yeah so we're learning class teaching um, taking his courses, things like that, and one day he comes in, and it was a uh, um, term project and he said he brings in like a little Plastic cube that was about 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. He says, If I were to give you this satellite, um, what can you do with it? Like, what would you fill it with? And um, how would you make this an effective satellite? And that was sort of a term project. And, you know, we come up with like these crazy ideas about, like, oh, we're going to put propulsion in it and things like that. Um, crazy idea at the time. Now all of those have um, been realized. And um, what I like to claim personally is that just because I did such a good job on that term project, the CubeSat was born.
2: You know what? Uh, you're like Star Trek, right? Uh, today's uh, science fiction is tomorrow's science. So, yep. and if we fast forward 20 years later, I had the benefit of all of the work that you guys laid down early on to help middle school kids start building CubeSats. Now I wanna pivot real quickly. You You teach at the academy, the Naval Academy, how many years does it take your midshipman to go from here's our idea to fly in space until it flies is it one four-year period or do you start a project and then the kids jump on and jump off how, how does that work at the academy
1: yeah uh, so mostly within their four-year career uh, tenure at the naval academy we would like to have them um, develop and fly and that is realized in most cases. So uh, one thing that we cannot control is the launch portion. Yes. So uh, they they get it done in time, but launch happens whenever it happens, and it, it continues to slip. Nice. So what I do is I sort of split the script so that the students in their sophomore year operate the satellites that we launch first, and by operating the satellite, they get a good idea of um, how, how the satellite systems work. They get feel for what the satellite is supposed to do and how it behaves. And then they take that knowledge and in their junior and senior year, build a satellite. And by the time they graduate um, in their senior year, uh, we call it capstone design, sort right. the senior year, full year design course, curriculum. And that's when they develop their satellite and get it ready for delivery, and then, and then they graduate.
2: That, that, that's outstanding. My next question was going to be, do the young kids follow the older kids? But you just throw the young kids right into the operational phase. Um, yeah. One last question about the, the midshipmen and their program. Do you have um, numerous vendors that you work with or, and you don't have to tell me which ones, but, or do you have like this very short list of uh, parts suppliers that you draw from or, and, and the follow-up is, do you build your own printed circuit boards or do you buy boards uh, on uh, cots, cots boards?
1: So so all the elements you just mentioned in your question, we've been bouncing around back and forth within the enti- entire range. So um, we started with sort of wide number of vendors um, and by developing relationships with them, meaning uh, we buy the part, we don't know how it works, we talk to them, they're, if they're nice to us, then, then the, the relationship develops and then um, students. And and then you sort of get pigeonholed into the, the specific hardware because now you know how it works and. Since we're cranking out a satellite a year, you know, um, it's, it's good to sort of go back to the comfort zone. So we started with a wider range and now we sort of narrowed down to three or four vendors um, that are well, sort you, of our go-to vendors.
2: Right. Well, you have confidence, right? It's hard when you have yep. wide heritage and confidence to deviate from that. Yeah. I want to and kind I mean, of kick
0: this over a little bit towards um, some of our students who may be listening, who may never even have considered the Naval Academy as a viable op. They, you know, they just, it doesn't make uh, any sense in their mind. I want to be an engineer. Why would I go there? Can you explain a little bit um, more for, for how, like how the, maybe what some of the requirements would be, what the Naval Academy would be looking for, or ultimately why it's a good fit for many engineering students versus other schools, for example?
1: Yeah, so, um, so the military aspect is sort of a personal choice and, um, what they desire so it's a little hard for me to speak to sort of that aspect of it Um, from the engineer's perspective the military academy or or, um, naval academy service academies are unique in that our entire resource is focused on educating undergraduate students only so um, if you are at uh, different universities that concentrate on bringing a lot of funding through uh, research the focus is on graduate students and Doctor students in in getting the research rolling and bringing more and more money um sort of that's that's the focus there but here undergrads the students are it we exist to provide the education and training for the students so um as an engineer i the the students that um, are in our current program i mean they're getting these opportunities to play with like state of the art technology and state of the art equipment, getting full attention of their professors. So, as an engineer of at undergraduate level, I don't think there's any better opportunities out there than um, service academies. So, so in that aspect, I would definitely recommend. Um, I think it's a wonderful program.
0: I mean, it's it's prestigious to be selected to to attend the academy uh what are some of the if a student was listening and they're thinking okay i've never really considered what are some some requirements or what are some characteristics that a student who attends the academy should have if they see that in their prospects you'd mentioned like um, commitment maybe might be an individual kind of thing um besides that maybe like are, are there certain requirements for gpa or for academics or
1: yeah, um, from what I understand, the sort of the bar for admissions is similar to sort of top university, top colleges in that um good grades, things like that. Um, I know that one special um, application thing that, that service academies or uh, applicants need is a recommendation from their um, congressional district. So congressman has to sign off or provide a recommendation. And then, of course, there's a physical aspect as well. Right. Um, One thing sort of once they come over the fence onto my side, uh, once they get accepted. One thing I notice that I think is another unique quality of the Naval Academy is we make sure that we develop our students uh, for their character as well. So there's academics, they have to be students, but um, we really uh, emphasize the the character
2: development as well. And um,
1: I I think that's, again, another
2: great opportunity for um, students who are looking
1: for that sort of environment.
2: My, my daughter went to an academy, not the Naval Academy, but I can tell you from a parent of a child that went and graduated, uh, academies like superior academic performance. They tend to have uh, kids that were athletes and not only athletes, but there's also an element of leadership. I know that's very common with applicants in that whatever that child did in high school, they were probably a leader in that area whether it be their academics, their athletics, or whatever their passion, I'll call it a passion project, but whatever that thing is that makes you really distinctive, you probably were a leader in it if you find yourself in an academy. And
0: from the commitment aspect, it's it's the four years, right? I think go it's the five base. now. It five?
2: I think it's five.
0: Can you maybe yeah, explain five years what, years. what that commitment is for maybe students or parents who are listening who don't understand exactly, you know, what that is?
1: So I may be misspeaking, so um, please double check. Uh, but uh, when you get graduate from the academy, I think you're uh, obligated for five years uh, to serve in the Navy. And after five years, you could decide to either continue on or, um, or something else. So but it's not happening
0: simultaneously sports- then. In other words, you know, you go to school, you get your training, and then your commitment would come after that. So it's not like you're having to do both at the same time. So it right. comes after. So it's kind of like. But um, in exchange for that, you get all the benefits that you would normally get for being in the military. Yes. Uh,
2: it's an incredible fraternity. Yes, it is.
1: It, um, yeah, all I, kinds of benefits. And um, I mean, for, for parents, think about this. Day one after the graduation, immediately, your children will have a job. <laughs> that's guaranteed. Well that's,
0: that's what I'm thinking. I mean, right. I think even as a, as a parent, even you met my son, it was one of those things that I personally never considered because I just assumed that it meant oh, you have to go into the military and that's it. That It's just an extra level of training is what that is in a field that you want to go into and the benefits about it. So I think it's an overlooked um, uh, way to get your, your training for schools. So. Right,
2: right. Well, I'm going to pivot back to the small sats because you are what we call a subject matter expert. Uh, and um, my question to you is, So let's say there are folks like me, they're teachers and they work with secondary students, high school and middle school. If you had to design the perfect program to help funnel kids into sort of an aerospace type STEM career using the hardware that you're familiar with, how would you do that with the youngest kids? Where would you start age-wise and what would you have them do?
1: Ooh, wow, okay. Um, so th- the struggle that I also face at, at the university level is that the, the fact that you're building something that's going to go into space is, is, is the huge attraction. Um, th- that's the ultimate motivator. Uh, hey, whatever you're working on, we're going to put into space. Um, for earlier levels where you have to have a lot of background background knowledge and things like that also um, within part of your uh learning um, that may not always be uh, a possible outcome at the end so so that's where the struggle is um you could make it look like satellites but it's it's not full satellites there you use a little bit of that that sort of the the bling there Um, but there's a whole lot of key concepts that you could teach at all levels i believe so um just a simple thing like coding on on raspberry pi processors Um, Just by interacting with those sensors and things like that. Only difference between what you would do with a Raspberry Pi with some sensors, with um, say elementary school kids or middle school kids, the difference between that and a full satellite is it's packaged around, packaged uh, within some expensive shell that could produce power off solar energy. That's like the only difference. We launch Cube's um, Raspberry Pi processors into space all the time, and they
2: work great. Wait, you at, so, the, uh, at, at the Naval Academy or just in general that Pis are used in space?
1: In general, and I am going to be launching the next set up satellite with Raspberry Pi processor. So, are you kidding? Naval Academy is also going in that direction. Where we're going to go with um, yeah commercial off the shelf components.
2: That's, for that's wild. Um, we we are actually our next hosted payload mission. Have you ever heard of bits, Which I think is a simpler form. Uh, it's a it's a gateway board for really young coders. It was made in the UK and it's about half the size of a PI board. Uh, it has a wonderful little, uh, dashboard, you know, where you can write the code in a sort of a visual editor or, uh, the Python script. And, uh, of course, you know, you get sensors and you hook them in. Wonderful. Uh, I had no idea you were going in that direction because that, uh, the cost of a pie is really low and children can use the pies when they're six year olds in preparation for getting them ready so that for it makes them you. more
0: accessible is what you're saying.
2: You're, you're lowering the barriers of entry as far as uh, the resources a child may have and uh, the complexity. That's very cool.
1: Yeah, the is I think is a big thing too. The um, some of the the schools that i've been helping in the past one thing i noticed is there's there's a lot of enthusiasm but the advisors themselves don't have um a lot of experience
2: oh so, I, yeah you're you're talking to one of them so
1: <laughs> well i mean you, you, i i consider you a uh, non-expert as well but um
0: not in wow. coding though that's one one of your challenges you know, that,
2: right? that actually is a weakness um i have a group of kids that meet at a community center i'm taking a 12 year old to teach the coding class because he is very good at it. Why? Why should I do the job when I've got a kid that's ten times better than me?
1: Right. And and so if I were to give a uh, student a full FPGA board and say, "Hey, learn this and program it," it's it's not going to happen. Whereas in um, things like Raspberry Pi boards, um, the, I know a high school that's launching Raspberry uh, Raspberry Pi Zero board, you know, tiny one, just like that, as a main processor. Um, and then there's so much support. Yes. And there's lots of literature out there that even uh, maybe a teacher who's just interested but doesn't have really a deep background should be able to come up to speed really quickly.
0: Why so, weren't they using them before? Then why, I mean, why Why is it such a novel well, idea? Well,
2: uh, it's a confluence of uh, accessibility to space, right? When you couldn't get a ride, there was, I, I think it's just the, this curve has become steeper and steeper for opportunities, launch providers, miniaturization of electronics. Am I leaving maybe out maybe an important factor there? What What do you think, Jen?
1: No, I think that's exactly it. Um, before you get like one launch, your career, entire career, and you want to make sure that it absolutely works in space. Right. So to give you an example of uh, the Raspberry Pi board, if I were to get that. Get the same sort of computing power and um, radiation hardened sort of like a full satellite fully reliable type of format. I'm guessing something like $25,000 for just for that board to to have that be like a big satellite expensive stuff. Whereas in now these boards are like 10s of dollars and um, they survive well enough in space and um, just like um, Kevin mentioned the the launch opportunities are becoming a lot more abundant, like it's it's a lot more easier to launch your payload. So hey, why not just um, gain experience, have fun with it, launch, and if it works, great. Right. So it's it less it, imperative
0: it. that you focus only on making sure it's successful because even if it, something goes wrong, it wasn't such a huge outlay. Yes. At that point, the, I, that makes
2: it, sense. It's funny. It's sort of like the contrasting the uh, SLS NASA rocket versus uh, Elon Musk, right, as far as incremental improvements and, and things like that. Um, th- this is outstanding. Uh, I had no idea about the pie, and thank you for that advice about the coding. Uh, and, you know, I, I think in the last 10 years, 3D printing has also become pretty ubiquitous at very low education levels. Even though we don't fly um, chassis that are made out of plastic, the kids are certainly competent at you know, a lot of us have kids that print 3D chassis to build the emulators for the CubeSats, which I think visually helps them really uh, come up to speed. Do your kids do a lot of, uh, do, do, you, do you follow the standard uh, CAD model, engineering model, flight model for your kids or do you have a different way that you uh, train them on uh, putting together their, their missions?
1: So that's how it's taught in classrooms. But in actual practice when students are doing their projects they're they're totally spoiled with all these these uh, 3d printers they could print whatever they want whenever they want so um as an engineer I advocate you know um, doing analysis just like you're saying cad cam and then you know sort of move on but um they have the luxury to print see if it happens I mean if it works if it fails they just reprint
0: they start again. And
1: I picked, i don't i kind of like that approach. It's kind of growing on me in that um, I think that may be sort of the future uh, a good way for students to get really excited and just just learn.
2: So it's, it's, it's iterative, right? Are you saying like your CubeSat models, they just 3D print the parts to form fit them? Or are you just speaking about 3D printing in general?
1: Uh, both. And um, for 3D printing, so for, for example, if I needed a, a secondary structure to support a new board that we designed, then will just go in 3D print. Come back. Oh, whoops! I missed the whole placement. I'm gonna just go 3D print again, which yes. is not not um, sort of traditional way. But um, so they do have that opportunity.
2: Yeah, it's it's very much the uh, what do you call it? The engineer engineering design cycle, right? Iterate, uh, test, change, tra- ad- uh, adapt, uh, and you know that's that's outstanding. Um, let's see. I have a hundred questions. But well, you I'll can get
0: it. one more because we are for the sake of time almost um, at the end, and so you get one so,
2: more. So. Uh, Jen, what do you see as the future for small sats, not just uh, cube sats? And, and uh, I'm sorry I didn't ask earlier, but I presume mostly you build three U's, is that correct? And what do you see for the future of small sats?
1: So uh, yeah, we do mostly one U bus with a little bit of payload. So we do one and a half U. Um, because sometimes we have two satellites getting ready to go and it's good that we could put two, one and a half years together and we get the whole container and we can whatever we want with it. Um, I am um, happy that the the government and the military and everyone's taking a much more serious stance on CubeSat technology. Um, I think it's a great movement. Before, we were called debris sets, toy sets, things like that. Um, but there's a lot of potential there, and, and um, there's a lot of sort of investment and interest going into it, so, so I think that's a great um, great direction. At the same time, the things that students get trained on, the CubeSats, as they graduate and go into the fleet or out into the industry, now they've seen this the thing before. It was a little bit of a step up going from CubeSat to bus-sized, multi-billion dollar satellites. But now uh, industry and government's coming down a little bit in size and cost and sort of quickness of how fast they could develop the satellites and then, and then our CubeSat technology is coming up. So I, I see this sort of uh, narrowing of the gap and I, I think that's a wonderful thing.
2: Right, is it true that no graduating engineer today working on satellites, um, none uh, all of them have had experience with CubeSats? Would you say that's a fair statement? Or are we not quite there yet?
1: I think it's almost there. Um, I am mean, is so such a popular, prevalent. Um, everyone loves it. I everyone mean, uses it. I think it's a great tool myself. And um, it seems like when you, I mean, when you go to conference and walk around talking to people, like, I mean, and and you're you're a big part of it too. Like middle school on, I mean, everyone's had their hands on it. And um, yeah, I, I think it's becoming a uh, sort of like a normal, like for, for all education institutions. Thank you.
0: Well, our final question is always about giving some advice. So, as I'm thinking, you know, about our audience, and there are many parents who have, you know, kids maybe even in high school, middle school. So, what advice would you have either for our parents or students who are thinking about maybe taking the engineering track um, or may have their sights set on doing something as, um, you know, as prestigious as the Naval Academy? What advice can you give them about hanging in there to be an engineer?
1: Yeah. Um, so. To me, engineer, so a lot of uh, students come up, sometimes they haven't decided quite uh, what major to take and they, they like science and they're wondering about engineering. Um, sort of one distinct, distinguishing uh, feature that I, I like to highlight is engineers are people who make stuff happen. So we definitely need scientists, we need mathematicians, we need them to come up with all kinds of theory to help us make the world a better place. But it's the engineers who translate all the theories and new ideas into practical things that we could actually use in our everyday lives. So if you like to tinker, um, if you like to make stuff, and um, if you like to make stuff happen, um, I think engineering is definitely a way to go. Um, regardless of what career choice you make, I, one thing I want to emphasize is, make sure it's something you really like to do. Um, you're going to be spending a lot of nights, a lot of time working on this stuff. So it's got to be something that you really like to do. Um, I consider myself, like my job, I don't consider it working. Only part that I consider working is grading papers. (laughs) But all the other stuff, um, like I said, I threw around the word candy shop. I I, I love being an engineer. I love working on satellites and and it's a great thing. And um, for the parents, aerospace is booming. Uh, We're gonna have persistent, um, what's the word they use? A sustained, presence on the moon and everyone's going space 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 Um, anytime I talk to my colleagues at NASA or other places they're always asking me if they're good talent because they're just dying for um, good talent in aerospace engineering so so it's a great career path and um, it's I I see it booming just just exploding in next that choice award in our field of work, but uh, I see it exploding in in the next few years. So um, I definitely consider, would like you to consider this as uh, one of your career choices.
0: We really appreciate you giving them that advice and also for taking some time out today. It was good to see you again.
1: Yeah, it was good to see you. Thank you.
2: So today we had the privilege of interviewing one of my good friends from way back when uh, we were all in the DC area, uh, Dr. Jin Kang fantastic professor at the Naval Academy. And I think the coolest thing about him is he was a student when the CubeSat was created in the lab where the guy created it.
0: Yeah, that is something, I mean, especially for him to be able to say that he sees, it almost sounds like when you think about the future of space, well, that's happening now. So if you're, if he's, if he's saying that, it's almost the norm. The norm will eventually be that it's CubeSats. And to be thinking that it's going to, instead of, usually we think of something as it expands, getting larger. Whatever, as this continues, seems to be getting smaller and smaller as it goes.
2: Absolutely. The the miniaturization of electronics and the miniaturization of satellites is totally disruptive (laughs) because they're lower cost and the design cycles. Whereas used to, it would take Twenty years from a time a uh, someone envisioned a satellite till that satellite was you know the end of its life. Mm-hmm. Now it's like a year or eighteen. Well,
0: months. the irony, right? Because space is so vast, and yet the miniaturization of getting to space. That's
2: yes, kind of and 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 about. what uh, you know, I we visited Jen's lab just before COVID, and when he says Candyland, uh, you know, a good engineering uh, university or a lab that's working on CubeSats is a very fun place to be. At least I'm, I'm biased in that. Yeah. So we, we appreciate you joining us uh, this week um, in our podcast. And you, know, uh, you
0: mentioned the conference. You want to give a quick plug? For uh, that yes, conference?
2: yes. Um, we are hosting our first satellite conference. It's called the Satellite Satellite Education Conference. Um, You can find more information about it at satelliteeducation.org. It's going to be at Kennedy Space Center at the Center for Space Education uh, in the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center, October 29th and 30th. If you are a teacher or a student, you are invited to attend for free. We'll have some exhibitors, some vendors. We'll have some great presentations. Hopefully Professor uh, Jen and his midshipmen will be there. And it'll be a great way for those of you that are interested in potentially doing aerospace to figure out how to get your hands on some real world hardware and get to work.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, of course, we'll have someone new for you next week. And we hope that you'll join us as we once again say, let's let's go go
1: to to space. space.